Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today, very much in keeping with our mission to bring together reasonable, thoughtful, educational uh, voices that can talk about uh, any number of things, politics, history, education, of course, the arts. But today, we are really going above and beyond the earth. My guest today is the Chief Knowledge Officer of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, located at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., his research applies game theory to human behavior in organizations, and he has conducted numerous executive education sessions on conceptual thinking designed to help managers to, in quotes, see their own decision-making models. Dr. Rogers grew up in Saudi Arabia, went to high school in India, and spent five years in wartime Lebanon. He's earned his Ph.D. from Cornell University, my wife's old stomping grounds, and became a teacher and joined NASA in 2003. After all that introduction, may I call you Ed, Dr. Rogers? Yes, please. Thank Uh, you very much. Okay. Welcome to the show, Ed. We'll talk about Ed's love for ballroom dancing and his wife of 38 years and singing Sinatra songs later, But, but for now... Tell us, what are some of the maybe obvious challenges, uh, more challenging rather to get to Mars than it is to get to to the moon? Well, certainly. And, uh, Marcello, thank you very much for having me on your your show. My pleasure. Uh, Just a quick one. I I do work for NASA. I consider it a great privilege to do so. Uh, And this conversation, of course, I'm not an official spokesman for NASA policy, but I'm happy to share with you uh, what what my opinions and my thoughts about uh, what we do here, and which is terribly exciting work. Yes. It's just a terribly exciting place to work. I, I cannot say it any other way. And yes, people are interested in going uh, to Mars. I asked our administrator that question at an open forum some months ago, and, uh, and he replied rather easily, well, it's 2030 or somewhere in there. We're, we're aiming. We have to pick a date, and we have to set our mind and, and begin to work towards it. And I think NASA is doing that. 
Mars is much more difficult than the moon. We thought the moon was very complicated. Mm. Uh, but if you look at the moon missions, we didn't stay on the moon very long. It was a matter of hours yes. that they actually stayed on the moon. And most of the entire uh, episode, the whole mission, was really getting up, getting to the moon, and getting back. And they just you know, stayed there and had lunch, so to speak. I mean, mm-hmm. they did some very interesting things. But as far as the overall mission, if you go to Mars and you take a year to get there, mm. you're not going to spend lunch, you know, stay for lunch and leave. Yeah, exactly. And so you have a whole different set of uh, equations to figure out not only in getting there, but in surviving there and getting home and, uh, and communicating, having getting energy. I mean, the sun is a small dot in the sky when you're at Mars. It's not a bright, big yellow disk that lights things up for you and powers your solar cells uh, generously like you do in the orbit around the Earth or, mm. or in, this, in this vicinity. So there's lots and lots of questions. Radiation, I mean, and the, the scientists and engineers who work on all this are, are of course, eager to work on a, on a big problem. That's what they like. Yes, they exactly. They don't like small problems. <laughs> <laughs> so they're excited about the opportunity to be able to cha- uh, take on that challenge and, and start to solve some of those problems. So let us then uh, talk about, and thank you for that answer. It was terrific. I, I'm... Uh, let's talk about what I think uh, sort of led to you starting to work at NASA. Um, on January 28, 1986, we, we know NASA and America suffered the loss of life on the Challenger. And then on February 1, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia broke apart when re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. This led to questions regarding NASA as a learning organization. And that's going to be one of my questions. Um, but you started working at NASA on March 13th, 2003. Can you tell us about uh, the people who choose to or are chosen to work for NASA, especially the knowledge management architect? That's you, yes? <laughs> yeah, so I was hired in May, actually, 2003. Ah. So, but it was just a few months after the Columbia, as you correctly pointed out. And uh, I was uh, applied for the position in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I saw it in a, I saw the ad in the newspaper. I showed it to my wife. We were living happily in Alabama at the time, where I was a professor. Mm. And uh, she said, "You need to apply for this job." And I was quite taken back that I was thinking it might be a hard sell. You know, mm-hmm. after a few years, move again, and all that kind. She said, "This is what you spent five years doing your PhD on." There you are. They, that's what they want. They want somebody who does that. You should apply. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, wonderful um, partner that she has been in life. Yes. Uh, that was good advice. And uh, and it was selfless advice. Uh, that's what struck me. Yes. It was very selfless. And I did apply, and then I was uh, accepted, and I came up here and interviewed uh, in the in the fall. And then Columbia happened in, in February, and I didn't hear from anybody for several months. Yes. And I finally wrote to them, and I said, hey, you know, classes are starting again. I'll be busy for another year. Is this position thing still open mm-hmm. and yes 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 and i was blown up here and interviewed but it became clear to me when i talked to them that they didn't really have any idea what i would do huh? as a knowledge management officer for the goddard space flight center and at first i thought that's interesting yes uh this is a government many you know thousands of people work here yes but but the interesting thing into your question was that's exactly why they hired me. They didn't hire me because they already knew what to do. They hired me because they didn't know what to do, and they wanted someone with expertise in this area who could come in and help them figure those things out. 
And that really is the secret of a place like this. Yes. Um, hire people who are smarter than you in some way, mm-hmm. because that will add to your overall uh, in, uh, t- intelligence and smartness and ability to solve problems. I think so that's I a. Was, I, think, great, I think that's. Great to him. Uh, yes, and I think that's a great life uh, a choice anyway to 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 surround yourself with people who are with their own particular area of expertise smarter than you are and everybody wins but what absolutely you don't get any smarter by hiring people that are less smart than you or you think you know know everything why hire them exactly exactly but um tell us should we make a connection between the uh caib report and i guess we should explain what that is and the knowledge management program Accident Investigation Board, mm-hmm. which is what you refer to, CIIB, which was the official government investigation of the accident causes, root, root causes, what happened, why, and you know how did it happen? Uh, technically, exactly how how the uh, the Columbia came apart. They did all of that. They collected the pieces, of course, and fit it together down there in, in Houston, mm-hmm. and really did a, an amazing job of sleuthing to to reassemble, uh, you know, the sequence of events. But more than that, what the, what the CABE report did was identify that this was more than a technical fault. This was an issue of the organization, you know, mm. losing sight of some things uh, in some ways. And that's where that line came from that you referred to earlier. NASA is not functioning like a learning organization. That was a quote from the CABE. Yes. And so it was this, doesn't this sound and smell too much like Challenger, a big program, very highly visible, a lot of people working extremely hard, but some of these organizational things in terms of how decisions were made, how lessons from one part were shared with another part, how information flowed in the organization, those things had something to do with it. Yes. And that was the thing that got their attention. It's like, well, those are not engineering challenges. Uh Those are management and organization and communication and human behavior challenges. And, and yes, so when I came on, I was, as I mentioned, I was in the process of being hired when the accident happened. Yes. And I think what happened was my office, the office I was getting hired to, to do, what became very pertinent, and it was a very yes. important question that we needed to answer. So I, I just want to backtrack just a bit, and, and it's probably my lack of knowledge, but why I've never heard of NASA referred to as a learning organization. That's a wonderful phrase, and if they think of themselves that way, that way, that's even better. And if they act that way, that's the you know the cherry on top. But what what do we mean by uh, NASA being a learning organization? So, in, in the organizational literature, a learning organization would be considered a healthy organization. Think of a ah, plant. Okay. And you put a plant in a pot, and it starts to grow, and it grows one way, and it hits a wall. Well, it doesn't just die. It mm-hmm. says, okay, there's a wall. It finds its own way. So something all in and of itself, that plant has figured out which way to go and where the light is and how to make itself healthy. Gotcha. So you would say, well, that's a learning system. It didn't just run, hit a wall, die. It had the ability to detect errors, detect, you know, uh, faults, obstacles, and then correct its course along the way, including correcting its own system, how it operates. Hmm. You know, it learned. It got smarter as it went along. And so all good organizations are fundamentally learning organizations, or they atrophy and they die. They invent Mm. one thing, and when that becomes a passing fad, uh, they're out of business. They haven't Mm. learned much about really what's going on. 
So the good organizations, I mean, you look at the consumer product ones that are easy to identify. Yes. You know, pick one, Nike, for example. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they learn what kids want for shoes and what's fad and what will sell. They continually do that. They yes. are selling the same shoe they invented 30 years ago. Excellent. And so the, to, to avoid mistakes and accidents, you have to be able to learn and course correct. Okay. And so NASA is a tremendous learning organization. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the best in the world, if not just based on the record of what we have accomplished. Sure. Unfortunately, we have to be almost perfect, mm-hmm. which means yes. there's always room for improvement. And that was a little bit of a hard message to tell, you know, rocket scientists and world's top engineers that they needed to improve their learning when there are many of them at the top of their game already and have done some of the most amazing things in human history yes. when it comes to, you know, engineering and science. So that made it difficult, but the, nonetheless was still needed uh, to, to look at so that these organizational things don't trip us up again like they like they did in these accidents that you referred to. Organizational and management issues, I, I get you. So you created the knowledge management program in answer so to... I created a program at the Goddard Space Flight Center okay. where I was hired, which is here in Maryland outside of D.C., as you pointed out, one yes. of the largest NASA centers, actually. We don't launch things from here, so we don't have a lot of... Uh, public visibility, but we do a lot of science. We uh, build the weather satellites. We do a lot of Earth science, most of it here, mm-hmm. and planetary missions as well. So a lot of that stuff goes on here. Um, and so I came here and started a program in 2003, and after five or six years, much of that program has been rolled out to the agency at other centers around, and not copied in a sense, but the idea that we need to do things like this at the other centers and uh, NASA headquarters appointed a CKO for the agency some years ago, uh, and, and in, not entirely, but in large part on the on the work that had been done at this center, which was, to be honest, had had some foresight to say this is a long-term problem yes. that we need to work on. This is not a uh, quick fix uh, thing. In and out, you know, hire a consultant, get a report, you, you know, tune your organization, and redo this org chart or something like that. Nothing mm-hmm. to do with that much more to do with cultural and behavior and the way we think. So it became a long-term challenge for me, and it was the stuff I was interested in. And mm-hmm. they're fascinating and amazing people to work with. So, you know, what's not to like about that? I, I, I feel privileged to work here. It's been a wonderful career. Now, I don't know, and maybe it was not the correct way to ask the question, but I'll just put it this way. What is the Knowledge Management Program? So is- what I have, what I set out to do... Uh-huh find things that weren't being done. Where are the gaps? Because some things were, I mean, I didn't need to come in and tell the engineers that they needed to keep track of their parts. Okay, yes. Or, or, or do a better job of their test verification data analysis. I mean, that's what they do. And uh-huh. That's what they're excellent at. That's why our stuff works. Yes. The part that we weren't as good at was how do, what do we learn from our, the way our teams function together? Uh-huh. What do we learn from the way we structure our projects? What do we learn from the way we set up governance over our missions and run the center? So that these kinds of things, these kinds of communications or misinformations or drop information doesn't happen to us and introduce a kind of unknown or vague risk to the program that maybe somebody's just not watching this or it didn't get communicated or it got lost in the trail or the system was so detailed and rigorous that some people missed the bigger picture. Okay. of how this is interacting with something else. So these are all management organizational things. And by the way, these are in all companies. Sure. 
It's just when you have a very technical engineering focus, it's not where they're looking. And that's what the CABE report was pointing out, that yes, there were technical issues and there's risks. We understand that space is a risky, it's a very dangerous business. Mm -hmm. But there are management and organizational things that afflict all organizations. Yes. And NASA's not immune from those. And you need to spend some energy and time, just like GE or Nike or Walmart or anybody else would, to operate smoothly and communicate information so you don't have hiccups in the system that are not technical faults, but that are you know, organizational faults. Gotcha. And so that's what we do. Activities inside, we have reflective learning, practices that encourage people to learn from one another and from what we did on this mission to that mission that are not so technical in nature. They're more organizational stuff. One of the big things we do is we write case studies. Uh-huh. We write case studies of how these missions operate because when it's all done, people are like, well, oh, that was either good or that was bad. It worked. Oh, that was good. Let's, let's go off and work on another one now mm-hmm. without a lot of insight into what made that work well. Gotcha. Uh, in terms of the people and the organization, the communication. So you have you have good leaders who are successful, other leaders who might be struggling. How do you transfer that, what it takes to be a good leader, manager, project manager, et cetera, and, and transfer it around so all our projects have a good chance of success? Wow. That, you know, uh, you're right. I agree with you that every organization, every team, uh, if you will, every production has to have these kinds of skills. But when you're talking at a NASA level, uh, both the the human uh, personnel level as well as the operational level, it um, I guess it it just sounds uh, all the more challenging and all the more necessary. Uh, it's very challenging in the sense that people are. This for two reasons. I think that might be unique to NASA. One, the work itself is very challenging. Mm-hmm. We are on the edge. We are in, you know out in space. Yes. We are, we're, you know, mistakes are unforgiving. Yes. You can't close the hatch. You know, accidentally open the door. I mean, that, that, you know, you're done. Yes. Um, and, on the other hand, is people are highly committed to the mission. So people who are working 50, 60, 70 hours work. We were. I just came from a meeting the other day. They were discussing how many days over Christmas people are going to be working mm. to get this spacecraft ready because there's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake in the overall mission. And if one thing slips, then other people will be stand, will be waiting. You know, be out of sync. So they're discuss- that's not uncommon. Uh-huh. And so to go to people who are that committed to the mission and working those kinds of hours and intensity and say, oh, we need you to come in for a couple hours so we can sit around and discuss what happened, you know, to sort of uh, a debrief or we call them pause and learn mm-hmm. activity or, or go to a workshop where we're going to discuss some fuzzy leadership principles. Yes. They understand it's important, but the yes. challenge is where do you where do you put that in your priority of things exactly. when people are that committed and they're they're in the mission, and so that's a, that's a challenge here. But when they see that it's valuable, that it helps them, uh, then they they participate. Excellent. Okay, I think I'm with you now. We only have a couple more minutes in this uh, particular segment, but. Uh, as, uh, but we can always come back to him. I'm wondering how, I, 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 as I understand, there are like six lessons that make up the KM program, but how did Bill Hybels, is that how you pronounce his last name? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, run, uh, uh, who, he runs the Global Leadership Summit from his church in Chicago. Uh, he does. Uh, it, was, it was a big impression on me. I, uh, I only went for the first time a few years ago, and I was impressed with two things. Uh, one, his commitment to leadership 
as a as a concept. Mm-hmm. When leaders improve, everybody wins. Is one of the things he said. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the folks in my church organized it, and I happened to sign up and go for it one day. And I hadn't been, so I thought this is interesting. So the first thing was the commitment to leadership. That was his primary focus. Was if we can improve leader at, in all walks of life. Uh-huh. Any organization, not necessarily related to the church, any organization, if the leaders improve, the organization will improve, better achieving its mission, and the people will prosper and, and do well who are committed and part of that. I mean, poor leader sets everybody back. The second thing that impressed me was he brought in experts from wherever they existed. Hmm. So uh, I heard three different uh, people speak. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, well-known consultant author, written Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yes. I, I heard Ed Catmull, who was the founder of Pixar, ah. uh, which mm-hmm. we all know Toy Story and the movies that they yes. made. And he talked and told uh, what he'd learned. And then it was uh, a professor, uh, Liz Wiseman, who's written a book called Multipliers, uh, and, and published by Harvard. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of other, a bunch of and, and really people at the top of their field who were not promoting uh, Bill Heibel's church. They uh-huh. were simply promoting good leadership principles that can be applied worldwide. And I took these principles from those three that I cited and developed them into a leadership course that I'm now teaching internally to NASA leaders. Uh, so it's a great reapplication of good stuff, wherever it may be found. We're going to take a break there, Ed. This is fabulous. Uh, stay with us, everyone. Uh, we are talking to the, uh, let me get it right, the Chief Knowledge Officer of National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and that's NASA to you, at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Uh, Dr. Edward W. Rogers will be right back. Stay with us. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Andy Film Minute. Some films are such milestones of artistic cinematic history that they demand to be seen over and over again. Each time we do, layers peel away, gradually revealing a story that could be happening right now, next door, or even in our own hearts and minds. Such a film is Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita, shot in Rome in 1960. It was one of the first films to reveal the dark decadence of post-war European society, as well as a preview of what may become of us all. With all that, it managed to be a comedy. La Dolce Vita, or The Sweet Life, features Marcello Mastroianni as the self-loathing gossip columnist Marcello Rubini, a role that would make him instantly famous. Rubini is an everyman on a quest for love and happiness in a society of rapidly disintegrating values. In his own quirky style, Fellini treats this world with a frankness that shocked, infuriated, and delighted audiences of the day. The orgies may be tamed by modern standards, but the famous seduction in the Fountain of Trevi with the stunningly beautiful Anita Ekberg remains as sexy as ever. La Dolce Vita is a satirical expose of society's shallowness and emptiness, revelations we continue to ignore. La Dolce Vita, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today, again, just to be clear, 
is the Chief Knowledge Officer of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration located at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D. I call him Ed. And uh, <laughs> and we, um, we've been having a great conversation. I believe we left off with Bill Hybus and how his leadership summit uh, influenced your work at NASA in addition to I mean, what a life you've had. You, you, uh, uh, was I correct to say you were born in, uh, you, you grew up in Saudi Arabia? I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I was born in Pittsburgh. You, you know, you and my wife have uh, crossed paths. Yes, she was at Cornell and, and Pittsburgh and all that. Anyway, but um, what about uh, Saudi Arabia? I mean, it's obviously all the the news these days is is from the Middle East and mm-hmm. the, and, and we're crisscrossing each other and whose side we're on. It's just, a, I always say to people, when when Americans begin to think they understand the Middle East, that's when you go, wait a minute, but maybe you do. You grew up in Saudi Arabia. Tell us about that. Oh, it was, uh, well, thank you. And it's uh, great, been great talking with you, Marcel. Uh, Saudi Arabia, I went to Saudi Arabia in 1966. Uh, my parents were very adventurous. My grandparents lived in China. Wow. So my mother's family had a travel bug, was always looking for an opportunity to go overseas. Hmm. And uh, t- got that opportunity in 1966. We moved to Saudi Arabia. The oil industry was established, uh, but it was still uh, young. Yes. And the country was, of course, very young. Yes. Uh, my father was a professor. He taught in the very first university built in Saudi Arabia to wow. train Saudis to become uh, engineers and to eventually run the oil company themselves, which they did. In the, in the 12 years that uh, we lived there. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was a very different time. It was a yes. wonderful time. Yes. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure how to... I, we, we spent time, we lived with, the, with the, obviously, the Saudis and visited and all our friends were there. We went to their houses. They came to our house. I mean, it was just like, it was... I don't know how to describe it. Uh, mm. It's nothing like what uh, people think of uh, yes. today. And I give, I give you one example. Um, my father told me the story. He had a student, a uh, young, stu- young Saudi man, who wanted, wanted to, desperately wanted his professor to meet his family. Ah. Can you meet my parents? Can you come meet my parents? It would be honored if you'd come to have dinner with my parents. Yeah, he was so proud to be being educated and moving ahead, helping his country get ahead. So my father said... Uh, uh, sure, when do you want to come? Expecting, like, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, <laughs> he said, how about November? <laughs> and uh, I was like, what, November? He goes, yeah, well, in November, they will be passing by this way. They were Bedouin, nomads. They lived oh. in the desert in Ben. Oh, and, wow. And moved their, their sheep and camels hundreds of miles back and forth according to the, you know, rains and grasses. Sure. And he said, well, in November, they'll be nearby. So we'll get in my truck and we'll drive out. And, and we did. And that's a fabulous story. Uh, just a completely different concept of the life. So here's a man raised in a tent in a nomad life mm. who's learning physics and going to be an engineer and running a you know bazillion-dollar oil company. Of, uh, just uh, we, we don't have any concept of the amount of change that happened in one generation yes. and what kind of upheavals that causes in a social fabric. Of a, of a somewhat tenuous country as it was, uh, only not many very years, not, not very many years old at the time. Just mm. uh, so they were delightful people to spend our time with. That's changed considerably, of course, but uh, that was my experience growing up, and a very positive experience of 
living with a very colorful and interesting culture and all sorts of customs and things that we did. We explored the whole country. Land Rovers driving all around in the in the desert, barely using roads. I mean, so it's a completely uh, different experience yes. uh, than, than, than it is today. And it's, it's been interesting to watch. A little sad, to be honest. Yeah. I think I think they were a little afraid of Westernization overtaking them, mm-hmm. and they weren't quite sure as a as a social cultural group. What do we do about that? And it's you can see it's kind of a perplexing paradox. We want to be modern. We want to move ahead. But we don't want to just abandon everything that kind of has defined who we are. Yes. That's not an easy thing to work through. So they got some challenges there. And I, and I think also, uh, in, all, in all fairness to different cultures all around the world, America does tend to uh, view everything from an American point of view and that you'd be better off if you were another America or like America and and of course, shell oil going in there, and anyway, uh-huh. we we don't. But um, it's fascinating. Well, particularly to, the youth. The youth are the ones who are attracted to you know a material lifestyle. Yes. Consumer, you know the things that we we sort of generally associate with being in an open society where you you can go buy whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know there aren't those kinds of controls on people, and so you still see that stuff coming up now. Controls on. Uh, I mean, there was no alcohol, there were no movies, mm. uh, we, we, we didn't really have telephone service, uh, you know, so you couldn't go out and about. I mean, it was a very different uh, experience, but it wasn't without a richness. And yes. now when you bring all those things, internet, TV, availability, and alcohol, things are still illegal Thanks. officially in Saudi Arabia, but you, mean, you can be bought most places pretty easily if you know who to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does change you're, you're things. You're going to bring all kinds of social change with it, and you're not going to be in control of that change. Yeah. And so that sense of losing control, I think, was a real, real issue and has been and continues to be. It's something that we just don't understand because yes. it's, it's foreign to our, our nature of culture. Of course people can do whatever they want. What do you mean? Yes. <laughs> but can you hop in a, in a Land Rover and drive off and meet a, uh, a camel? kick, ca- <laughs> 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 You know... Uh, that's that's fascinating. What was it like uh, going to high school in India? So I was sent to boarding school, and that's related actually to the previous uh, topic. Uh. Uh, one of the things that the, the Saudis did was they forbid any uh, foreign uh, high schools to be built in Saudi Arabia. Now remember, this was the 60s. Yes. You know, American high schoolers were smoking pot, and having yes, free sex, yes. and running around with their clothes off. I mean, this was not, a, 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 we were not sending a good image of like, you know, adopt our teenage, you know, culture. Yes. So they specifically <laughs> forbid any high schools to be built. There was an American school for, you know, for expatriates uh-huh. and for like oil company uh, children. And so we all had to go to boarding school. Um, <clears throat> I owe that to my brother, mm-hmm. older brother Glenn, who researched out a school in India, which he probably owes it to a friend of his who researched it out. Anyway, so we went to this boarding school in southern India, which had been built in 1901 for missionary children. Hmm. And it was still operating as an international school, you know, uh, 75 years later. And uh, so I was sent off to India. It was fascinating. It was under emergency rule by Indira Gandhi at the time. The uh, 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 Independence War for Bangladesh. It mm-hmm. used to be East Pakistan, so that was going on. India, Pakistan, yes. we're at war. I mean, all this. It was an interesting time yes. to uh, to live there and travel around. And uh, my fondest memories of going to India were traveling around by old steam engines. They still ran many of their trains by steam engines. Oh wow! And they they retired them all now, but it was fascinating to ride around uh, on these trains. And we would purposely book trips 
and find out which train was the slow steam engine train and we'd take that one. <laughs> we didn't care how long it took us. Yes. We just wanted to, you know, we were having fun. And sure. We climbed up in the engines, you know, stoked the fire with the, with the engineer. I mean, just, just memories boys, you know, dream of, you know, doing exactly. fun. I had a very wonderful experience of my time. It was hard. There were hard, there were hardships. Yeah. But they pale in contrast to the, to the interest of, of the kinds of things we were able to do. Sounds fascinating. Just fascinating. Wow. Uh, uh, you know, you mentioned Indira Gandhi. I, I, uh, I, I can't say I met her, but she she w- came to uh, the Washington Cathedral, the National Cathedral uh, in D.C. Oh, decades ago now, I guess. And I, at the time, Raju Iyer, an Indian engineer, uh, who I've lost touch with now, but uh, he was my roommate, and he was attending Johns Hopkins University. And because of his position, he was able to get an invitation to go. And the funny part of the story is I, of course, I was very impressed. I wanted to, to, to be there. And uh, he, for whatever reason, once we got to the, the cathedral, he was sort of held back by a group. But because I had worn a, uh, back in the day, this um, black suit and my thin black tie and my white shirt, coincidentally, I, I was dressed like her bodyguards. And I think that's why I was allowed so close to her. And I, you know, I was just standing there, but but her bodyguards were around. And when she came out, to tell you how long ago this was, the big bright lights on top of the camera blinded her. She could hardly see as she exited the cathedral. But um, I, it, it was just a shame to, to hear of her assassination. I just thought her, her speech and the way, well, she was just wonderful. Anyway, back to... Uh, but now, women in India are a great topic, by the way. I go yes. to India every year and teach still. Oh, that's and right. I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the great uh, future potentials of their country. Uh-huh. And hats off to them because they are educating their women. Now, yes. Yes, you can see where they haven't made progress. It's easy to look and see the things they're struggling with. Um, but they're educating their women, and they're, and they're bright. I go there every year and teach uh, an MBA and executive programs. And they're bright, and they're energetic, and yes. they're eager, and, and, they, and they are going to empower uh, the future of that country because they're educating their whole population, not just half of it. Exactly. Some of their neighbors are doing. And I just really admire, I think India has a huge potential ahead of them. And it, they have uh, struggled. They have some challenges, but I, I think they have the base education of their population and the awareness to get through it. And they are the second largest democracy in the world, yes? Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. and um, and they seem, um, my, again, my relationship with Raju Iyer, although decades ago, my impression from him and knowing him and, get, and living with him, getting to know him, made me feel like they take, India takes democracy seriously. And uh, not every democracy or republic does that. But again, I do want to get back to a, a bit of NASA before we have to go. Uh, concept mapping and uh, uh, what is that? So concept <laughs> mapping is a tool of visualizing what you're saying, uh-huh. your thoughts and words rather than drawing pictures. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just words. I usually put circles around them. So it's, it, my, my, my friends and colleagues uh, call them daringly bubble, Ed's bubble maps. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're words with circles and lines so it connects thoughts, which ideas 
several thoughts together create a concept. Mm -hmm. So you're building concepts of the fundamental pieces. So what we do with them is we do we use them for capturing lessons, stories, yes. uh, planning, uh, uh, analyzing problems, um, forming strategies and decisions. And it's just a visual tool to visualize what you're thinking. So what you're thinking, what I'm thinking, can now be combined in front of us into a common, uh, you know, one map of what all these, how all these thoughts fit together. Um, I teach it to MBA students. I use it extensively here. I learned most of this. Uh, from working with Dr. Joseph Novak at Cornell, a wonderful man who's mm -hmm. written some good books on this, um, on, uh, on mapping and organizational uh, learning. And uh, his most famous book is, of course, Learning How to Learn, yes. uh, which did his work on uh, 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 learning challenged children who, hmm. and how, how they learn differently and sometimes better. When we, we call them challenged, they may just not be following the, the script of mm -hmm. the school and they're just learning differently. So anyway, fascinating research, and from that I use this tool. So it's a very useful way of, of visualizing complex things and uh, finding your way through them. And then once you've found your way through them, knowing how you got there, in mm -hmm. case you want to revisit that and see what you might learn from it. You, fact, you I made a concept map for this interview. Yeah. We talked about. Oh. I put it out in a paper. I have it in front of me, so I, I know wherever you want to go. Oh, well, there you are. <laughs> No wonder you're so good, <laughs> Ed. It yes, it you you um you created a live action play for interpersonal behavior. To is is this um is this a way to uh, sort of demonstrate to people at NASA um your program, your your ideas of management to educate. Uh, Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And you were involved in that, which was delightful, uh, you and the rest of the group. So one of the things that was so interesting was we have these lessons that we learn from it, like from the Columbia Challenger we were talking about earlier. Yes. And they're not easy lessons to grasp. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to see the part that broke and, the, you know, caused the fire and then the accident or whatever, you know, the sort of yes. mechanical A, B, C, D. What's more difficult to see is the subtle things that are behind that that contributed to that uh, situation and that bad outcome. Mm -hmm. And so wanting to do that, we struggled with, if you just stand up with a PowerPoint chart and say, point one, you know, talk to everybody. Point two, listen well. Point three, gather all opinions. Point four, you know. Yes. That's not going to actually change anybody's behavior. They might rationally recognize it, but they don't see the context and importance of it. And furthermore, they don't see how it sneaks into organizations and into meetings even into their own behavior. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I would never do that. No, you're probably doing it every day. Mm. And so we set out to do this play, which was which was wonderful. Mm. And uh, we we actually hired a group mm -hmm. that wrote a wrote a script and acted out based on some some real life situations. Yeah. In other words, things like what we do at NASA. So it was our it was NASA type work and conversations, mm -hmm. working on a mission like what we would do. And we illustrated in this play how people can have these meetings. And so the audience is watching these meetings take place, which happens all the time here at NASA, yes. these meetings. So they're watching these meetings as, as, as viewers, and they're seeing, like, he's not saying it. He's, he's not saying what he really wants to say. And, and the manager is, is thinking one thing, but the people, you know, they could see how it sneaks, sneaks into the meetings with no fault of anyone. No. Everyone's trying to, and that's what we wanted to illustrate. There's no, there's no fault and blame here. It's just 
everyone needs to be vigilant and also be willing to call each other out saying, we're going in a way we shouldn't be going. Can we go back and, and look at this? And, and that's what we want. And that makes us healthy. And yes. that makes us able to learn how to become a healthy learning organization. Well, I certainly enjoyed being a part of that and meeting uh, you and, and all the, uh, the people we worked with there at NASA. Uh, it was, was fun, uh, wasn't it? Oh, it was fun. It was, uh, it was, and even as the as the actor, it was an education, because um, uh, well, just learning <laughs> learning all the terminology, but finding that character and realizing, as you say, um, I'm, uh, some some people out there in the world might think the character I was playing was the bad guy, but he wasn't. He was That's true. Bad guy. Exactly, and I'm I'm so I'm not at all surprised to hear you say that. Before we go, let's get a little personal here. I, I, I promised okay. we were going to talk about your your love of ballroom dancing, and of course you've mentioned your wife of 38 years who who can be said to be uh, directly responsible for you being at NASA. Uh, yeah. I love that, and, and tell her thank you. And, uh, so tell us, what, what is this love of ballroom dancing and singing Sinatra? So uh, that uh, goes way back. So my first... The first movie I actually fell in love with uh. was West Side Story, oh, wow. which I watched in high school, uh. and, uh, and we used to imitate the singing and dancing of that of that uh, genre <laughs> of type of movie. Wow! I always dreamed of being able to do things like that. So where that ended up for me is when I went to college at Ohio State, where I met my wife. Uh -huh. uh, we took some dance classes together and started a journey of dancing some 38 years ago. Wow. And have just enjoyed socially dancing. We, we are not competitors, but we enjoy socially dancing and still take lessons. And it's just a wonderful activity to do. And especially as you grow as more senior in years, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and you're doing less cliff diving, and not that I ever did that, but, you know, <laughs> ballroom dancing is something you can take with you forever, and you can just go anywhere and make friends with it, and so I enjoyed that to, to no end, and we continue to do so. Um, singing was something that got put on the shelf. Mm. I never developed or did anything with it uh, for 30-some years, and it was only when I was, uh, just two years ago, decided, you know, hey, now or never, if I'm going to sing, I'm going to sing. So I actually went out and found a teacher and got trained to sing. Oh, wow. A little better. Yeah, and started singing some parties and a few places here and there on the side with, uh, with a band whenever I could. I don't have a band, but so uh, it's just it's just so much fun. But my most favorite thing of all, of course, is to just, I'm a crooner, is just to sing old Sinatra love songs at uh. home to my wife while she's making dinner. <laughs> you know that's the best part of it all. It is. And how did you know? My wife often tells me she married me because I sang to her on our first date. I sang uh, oh, Cole Porter's Cole Porter's Night and Day, and I it, uh, and I was in. <laughs> and, you, and you were in. That's right. So I, we had our we had our thirty fifth anniversary recently, and I got my guitar out and sang the song that I had sung to her at her apartment in college outside the window. Wow! Let me call, let me call you sweetheart. Oh. Uh, and I sang it to her. Uh, you know. We're just two great romantics. We're just two great romantics with wonderful <laughs> wives. Look what happens when you're I romantic. Think so. That's the recipe that works. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, we're going to have to go soon. I usually ask people for a website to contact. I don't know if that's appropriate for you, but you tell us you are planning to move to Charlottesville in a few years. What's that all about? Well, we're looking at 
at it. We, we think it's a wonderful area. Mm -hmm. uh, when I finished at Cornell, my wife said, why don't you apply to UVA? They must have positions. I actually did talk to them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they, they didn't at the, at the time. And uh, she's always loved the area. We go there often for holidays or visits or drives. So, so we've just been exploring it. We've got a few years, but we're just planning ahead okay. and thinking. But it's certainly... Right now, it's number one on the list of places we'd love to come to and, uh, and possibly live within the next few years. All right. Well, uh, Edward R. Rogers, Ph.D., it has been fabulous uh, talking to you. It was wonderful meeting you at NASA and working with you on what was your creation, really, even though we know that uh, uh, the play had to be written, but it was based on the information about NASA and how it operates and its managers and 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 written I believe uh, presented in a way intentionally that makes all the individual employees feel significant at NASA I believe that was one of your salient points um, I want to thank you so much Ed for being on the show and wish you all the best and personally as well as professionally and all that you do and appreciate your giving us at least a voice uh, to connect us with NASA. There's so much about NASA, and uh, we know a lot more about what happens when we look to the stars, thanks to you. Okay? Uh, you're, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and keep singing to your wife. <laughs> I will do that, and you too. <laughs> bye All now, right. Ed. Thanks, bye. Stay with us, as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. We've all had the experience of passing a homeless man or woman, arm extended for spare change, futilely seeking eye contact. We may not even acknowledge anyone is there at all. In Time Out of Mind, Richard Gere is George Hammond, a man living the homeless life. But we hear his name only begrudgingly well into the movie, and we never get more than a glimpse of his story. Apparently, he once had a house, a wife, a good job, insurance, but it's not really relevant. And there's a daughter we catch sight of occasionally, working as a bartender. It's not his identity or his past that Gear and his writer-director Oren Moverman want us to see. It's his invisibility. We don't exist, he cries out to a fellow street person, convincingly played by Ben Vereen. During the hidden camera filming, Gear stood for long periods in crowded New York. Dressed in secondhand clothing without makeup or disguise, he begged for change. No one recognized him. Long on Gear's wish list and done on a shoestring budget, Time Out of Mind is a powerful portrait of the downtrodden human beings we choose not to see. Time Out of Mind. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. We hope you enjoyed the Indie Film Minute. Visit us at IndieFilmMinute.com to share your thoughts, suggest films, or even to submit your own review. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. American history. Winners, losers, labels, decisions, and traditions. Why should we care who wins presidential debates? As if our arbitrary categories, discriminatory labels, and arrogant classifications like blue for boys and pink for girls matter? Or is it black lives matter only if others don't? 
To labels like red and blue states, I say, off with their heads. Our best humanity is rooted in the passions of intellectual dreamers, like John and Abigail Adams, Jefferson, Dolly Madison, and James Monroe. From such people come prophets who open our minds to protecting fresh air, so we can provide foundations for those who ask why not, like Frederick Douglass, Eleanor Roosevelt, Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Bobby Kennedy, Maya Angelou, Obama, and Bernie. Nonetheless, like the unwavering labor of nurses and administrative assistants, we need pragmatic centrists as caregivers for our shared village of cultural diversity, like Benjamin Franklin, Thurgood Marshall, Lincoln, FDR, Alice Paul, JFK, and Bill and Hillary Clinton, too. Without the dreamer's passion, the constant balancing act of political pragmatists, and, as needed, the additional seasoning of all-inclusive nuance, we and our dreams stagnate. Soiled by Wall Street, internally damaged by tobacco lies, pharmaceutical greed, and the bias of food deserts, we fall victim to the ignorance of jealousy, and without a lifeline to global education, our reason is breached, and desperation makes us vulnerable to the ramblings of anti-humane political nonsense, climate change denial, and drone collateral damage. It's not about who wins or loses a debate. It's not even about choosing sides or sidearms. It's about making rational choices that recapture and embrace our national helm and a one-for-all and all-for-one heel. It's about helping each other get the wind back beneath our wings. If, just to make the point that our comfort zone feels threatened, we opt for a state of the Union that is multiple Kent states, then we are accomplices after the fact challenged media and politicians. In the life of a nation blessed with much to give, do, and be, there are repeated opportunities for life-determining decisions which redefine, center, and realign. Life has demanded no less from African queens, Egyptian pharaohs, citizens of Rome, or Romanov serfs. So, auto manufacturers, bankers, candidates, CIA, civil servants, elected officials, families, oil companies, governors, Guantanamo torturers, judges, law enforcement, non-voters, NSA spies, racists, the Secret Service, terrorists, ours and theirs, and bunkered drone operators. It's your turn to heed what's MIA from our history books. Shall we rewrite our Constitution? Shut off all alarms and play dead? Elect the enlightened and crew the ship of state ourselves, or just fill our sails with more hot air? Either way, we're blowing in the wind, unless we fact-check. 1. Communism and socialism are not twins. 2. Exceptionalism would be not resembling Putin's foreign policy. 3. America has left behind troops after most of our military engagements. 4. 
Democrat, Republican, Independent, or Socialist, most of our boots on the ground and the kids providing a good kill in our name are the children of middle class and poor families ordered to do the bidding of, you guessed it, one percenters. President Obama's decision to return troops to Iraq and leave troops in Afghanistan is upholding American traditions inherited from past administrations and current corporatism. However, voters can revolutionize decisions by evolving to winning without labeling. Winners of the first Democratic presidential debate are the mirror image of the losers in the Republican debates. America thinking for ourselves, young people, women, especially seniors, immigrants, immigration reform, children, and all Americans who daily live the civility of the golden rule, believing all life on earth matters more than any guns heard round the world. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Music